to chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and stayed with an Adulamite man named Herah. So he's separating from his brothers. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. And Judah acquired her as a wife and had marital relations with her. Now, what do you automatically know? He's marrying a Canaanite. How many times have the patriarchs said, God forbid somebody from her family marry a Canaanite? Go back to our ancestors and get somebody there. And yet Judah is leaving his family and going deeper into Canaan and marrying a Canaanite. So automatically you know he's not good. It doesn't say that they became betrothed, betrothed or in love. It says that he acquired, like she's cattle, property. He had marital relations with Ur and had Ur and then Onan and then Shelah. Three sons. So the line is continuing on. But we're told that Ur marries Tamar. So just like father, like son, the son Ur is marrying a Canaanite. And so you're like, this family is totally hopeless. They're intermarrying with the pagan world. Ur is evil, which is interesting because in the Hebrew, Ur spelled backwards is the Hebrew word for evil. And so there's a pun here. And so Ur is evil, and he's so evil. We're not told how he's evil, but he's so evil that God strikes him down dead, which the only time we've seen that is the flood. So we're talking about evil, 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 especially if your name backwards is evil. So he's evil, and God strikes him down dead. He has no kids. So Judah gives Tamar to Onan. Now this is what's called a leveret marriage. A leveret marriage is detailed in Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we're told that because God values two things very much important in the land, is, or Israel, is lineage and land. And so if I am married to a woman and I die with no children, then my unmarried brother is required to marry my wife to provide me with children. This becomes very fundamental in the Ruth story. And so what it ensures is, is that my descendants, my line, my name continues on, which is very important in this 12 tribe, descendants, be fruitful, multiply, the line of Christ. It becomes very important to continue that name and line. But also make sure that my land stays in my family which becomes very important because this is the promised land given to you by God. And this idea of land not staying in family becomes a prominent theme in the book of Kings. And so this is the requirement. Now, if all my brothers are married, they can still do a levirate marriage because it's, polygamy is not approved by God, but not like culturally taboo. But it's not required for him, according to the law, to do it because God doesn't allow, really, or he has a smile upon polygamy. But if my brother is unmarried, he's required with a very steep punishment for not doing it, oftentimes death. And that's what we see. Onan becomes the new wife, but he doesn't want to give his inheritance. He, if, if he doesn't provide, he can get another wife and have his brother and his inheritance. But if he provides a kid with Tamar, then he doesn't get his brother's inheritance. 
And so he refuses to impregnate her, and God hates that so much that he kills Onan. Now, already we're told that the two sons of Judah are evil. So evil, God's killing them. But Judah interprets this as, she's a black widow. Everything she touches dies. There's no way I'm going to give her to my last son. And so two things are happening here. One, notice that he doesn't mourn the loss of his children. Compared to Judah, or Jacob, who won't stop mourning Joseph. The other thing is, he's refusing to continue the line. The most important primary command of God. He refuses to continue the line. If he doesn't provide a wife for his third son, then the line is dead. Which becomes very important to understand when we get to chapter 49. Well, we'll talk about that when we get there. So Tamar, desperate, decides to go off and disguise herself as a prostitute. And one day when he's walking by the road, he'll sleep with her and she'll become pregnant. Now, what is interesting about this is this assumes that he's actually going to hook up with a prostitute, which means there's something about his character that suggests that he is that kind of a guy. Either he's done it multiple times or she knows that he's easily seduced. Now, his wife is dead now, so maybe it's something he's been doing his entire life, or maybe he's something that he's beginning to do now that his wife is dead. We don't know. But there's whatever it is, she knows that when he sees a prostitute, he will sleep with her. That's his character. So you're like, man, Judah, you're not that great of a guy. You're selling your brother's slavery. You're refusing to provide a descendant. You're sleeping with prostitutes. You're marrying Canaanites. You're, using, you're willing to kill the dreams of God. And so she prostitutes herself to him, and he can't pay, so she takes his staff and signet ring, which is like his credit card, as collateral, and he sleeps with her, and he goes back to get the goat that he promised, notice the second time a goat's coming, third time a goat's coming into it, that he's being deceived with a goat in the story, and she can't be found. Now, he actually sends a servant. Maybe there's a it was at night when he slept with her, and now it's daytime, and he doesn't want to be known. Who knows? And the servant goes around asking for the temple prostitute. Now, the temple prostitute is actually a holy prostitute, a prostitute that you would sleep with. In the pagan religions, you would go to, the ch- you would go to church, and you would sleep with the priestesses and the pastors and all them, And your hope was to turn on the gods, and they would be so turned on that they would want to bless you with crops and children. So you're basically providing a dirty picture for them so they'll be happy and bless you. And they called that righteousness. They didn't think, oh, we're doing something wrong, we're going to hide it, like a lot of people in America do. They still do it, but it's taboo. But back then it was like, that is worship. So maybe he's looking for a temple prostitute because it makes it sound better than he just slept with a prostitute. We don't know. We can't find him. So three months later, when she's got baby bump, and it's so obvious she's pregnant, he's ready to what? Burn her. Now the hypocrisy is, yes, an adultery is punishable by death, but he's guilty of it too. And he's burning her which is really extreme. Usually the only time that burning was allowed was when the daughter of a Levitical priest 
had done something like this because she was held to a higher standard being a pastor's kid. And so he's going straight up to Bernie. And she says, hey, wait a minute. The guy who owns this, this is her insurance, is the father of the baby. And he's like, oh, crap. But then he says this really odd thing. Tamar is more righteous than I am. And the narrator says it in such a way as if the narrator is saying, amen, brother. And you're like, wait a minute. She is a Canaanite prostituting herself through deception to her father-in-law to become pregnant with her father-in-law's kid, which is forbidden by the law that will come later. How can the narrator call that righteousness? How in the world does this guy interpret it as righteousness? And this is why. She was willing to continue the line of Abraham. Here's the thing. Judah, who's a part of the Abrahamic covenant, does not value the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, nor desire to continue the Abrahamic covenant. Yet Tamar, a Canaanite woman who doesn't know anything at all really about God, is, desires the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and is willing to continue the Abrahamic covenant. And you're like, well, that's kind of reading a lot into that. No, it's not, because she could have, as a woman without a child, gone back to her father's home and found another family. If her father was refusing to give her a child, she has no child that covenantally binds her into that family. Therefore, there is no blood connection. Therefore, she can go find another family and create a different blood connection. But yet there's something about this family that she wants to be a part of that family. And it's not the shining stellar character of Judah. So it's got to be something more. And it's something that Judah, even with his bad theology and character, recognizes that there's something more that she's desiring than just having a kid because she calls her righteous. And the desire to have a kid is in everybody. That doesn't make you righteous. So this guy can even see that in righteousness, and the narrator says amen, says that it's more than just having a kid. She wants to be part of this covenant. And Judah doesn't even appreciate the covenant he's been born into. Yet the foreigner does. Now you're like, okay, yeah, but what she did was evil. Well, what do you expect from a Canaanite? Look, this is the whole story of God. Abraham doesn't know who Yahweh is, but Yahweh chooses him and changes his character. Ruth has some theology that she's heard through Naomi, or Rahab, sorry. Rahab has some theology that she's heard through stories, but she demonstrates faith before she really has this righteous character. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, and while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's the message of the gospel. What do you expect from people who do not have the Holy Spirit? She's been raised Canaanite, all she knows is Canaanite, and she sees something in this family that is different despite their jacked up evilness. The grace and the glory of God is still somehow shining through, and she wants to be a part of it. But she has no good theology teacher because Judah's not that great of a teacher. 
And so she does the best that she can with what she has to get into this family. And once she becomes a believer, once she's made of the covenant, then God begins to transform you. Never has the gospel ever called you to clean up your life because you become saved. In fact, the entire message of the Bible is you cannot clean up your life. That's why Christ had to die on the cross and circumcise your heart. And so, yes, you can stand here and say, but that's evil and jacked up the way that she did it. But God's looking at her and says, but at least she wanted to be a part of me. I can clean her up. I can remove her filthy rags and give her, but what I want from you is a heart that desires me. A heart that desires me, I can change the world. But there are lots of righteous people called the Pharisees who have no heart for God, and I can't do anything with them. And that's what the narrator is saying. Look, this is what it truly means to be a part of God. None of the people in this family, except maybe Joseph, has any real desire to be so connected to God that they're willing to do anything that they can to become part of it. And yes, this is immoral, but she's not from this family, so she's not held to the same standard. Now, 10 years after being with God, she will be. But not day one. And so this is the point the narrator is making, so much so that she becomes one of three women who make it into the genealogy of Christ, all of who are not, are not Jews. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. None of them are Jews. And the point is that the Gentiles get it better than the chosen people of God. And that's why she's more righteous. Now, what else does this do? How is this fits in to the greater story of Joseph by the fact that you see Judah beginning to change? See, at the beginning, he's selling his brother into slavery. But now you see him looking at a woman and realizing, wow, she's more righteous than I am. And you see that calloused, hard heart cracking a little bit. And it prepares you for his re-entry back in the story at the end of the Joseph story, where he's going to change even more. So it shows you that just like with Esau, where God began to change him, God's changing Judah. And that's going to become very important when we get to the end of the story. But the other thing that it does is it's saving the Abrahamic line, which fits into the bigger story of God blessing his people and continuing the line on. And so it develops that idea that the line is being saved and it's continuing on, which is going to help you understand the blessings of chapter 49. And then the third thing it does is it develops the Gentile theme that, the, that are supposed to be a blessing of the world. They're not supposed to be cutting the Gentile off and refusing to give them children. They're supposed to be bringing the Gentile into the family and making him a part of the covenant. And that's the bigger picture of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the story is there for those three main reasons. The character of Judah, the continuing the line of the Genesis story, and the greater Gentile theme of the entire Bible. 